Yeah, Skype uh, has done some weird things with me. I've been using it for about two years, and it, sometimes it right. just has a mind of its own. Sometimes my computer, uh, you turn it on, and the settings change. And in this oh, case, wow. that's what happened. Yeah, and you have to go through three or four different things to figure out what it decided I wanted to do. I like uh, guitars and plugging into the amp and turning the power switch on, things that are <laughs> of that nature, you know? That's very analog. It's very 20th century. <laughs> I, that's what I thought you'd say for some reason. <laughs> yeah, uh, for some reason, this is like uh, you open your guitar case and it's strung left-handed all of a sudden. And it's like, <laughs> no, no, I didn't want that, you know. And, right, and, right. and the audience is coming in and they're all waiting for you to play or something. Well, you know, the funny thing is that I live in Tallinn, which is the capital of Estonia. It's actually the home of Skype. Oh, really? Yeah. So... <laughs> I was like, that wouldn't do me any good. Yeah, I'm feeling like I have to fly over there to talk to them because they're somewhat inaccessible. Uh, I don't have the magic phone number to talk to the man behind the curtain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Well, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, they're all owned by Microsoft now, right? So. Oh, well, I didn't know that either. So and that, yeah. that, that could change during this conversation <laughs> as well. <laughs> I saw his ad on Facebook. I listened to his music, and I saw his drive to make a living as a rock musician. The balancing act, the balancing of art, the business, his family, and health. Here is Will Black. Welcome to the Better Each Day podcast radio show with Bruce Hilliard. Today and every day, reaching out for innovative ideas in every way. Today's show is brought to you by your future. It comes with a lifetime guarantee. Yeah, I was surprised. Estonia. How did you end up over there? You're from what, Toronto? Yeah, I'm Canadian. I've basically been living and performing abroad for the last uh, 15 years. And <clears throat> for most of that, I was in Bermuda for about 12 years at a house gig there at a bar. And then uh, I wrapped that up about 18 months ago. And uh, my wife's from here, so we decided to move here. We've got a young son who's three, and we decided just to come out here and give it a go. And uh, it's been great. It's cheap to live out here. I haven't had a chance to buy tickets to go see you because you haven't played anywhere remotely near where I am. <laughs> no, no, I haven't been out that way at all. It's a nice area to live. And there was a period of time right after the big hair period, let's say going into the 90s where grunge bands came out and that. So if you had a, a band that had original music at all, uh, pretty much a record label would approach you and say, Hey, we want to we want to promote you guys, and, and there were like Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Nirvana was a big one that came out out here at this area. All sure, about, sure, all, all this all the sub pop stuff. Yeah, exactly. You're familiar with yeah, sub yeah. pop? Yeah, yeah. I got a sub pop T-shirt. Oh, you do? I bought it in the uh, in the SeaTac airport. <laughs> I did an interview <laughs> with. Um, Jillian Gar. She wrote a book on sub pop, and she actually worked for them early on when they were just kind of a oh i don't know kind of a little they called it a magazine but it was done on a copy machine she said and that, that was what kind of what made them cool too i think they were just a small deal evergreen uh, college is one of the guys that went there they're known for a touch of the weirdness the guy that uh, <laughs> came up with the simpsons the, the cartoon oh uh groaning yeah yeah 
yeah, yeah. He's from, uh, he went to Evergreen. I think he lives in Port, <laughs> Portland now. But yeah, you see what I'm saying? It's everybody just, yeah, yeah. just a touch on the tainted side, which is <laughs> which is where I belong as well. Dude, but, that's the that's just the West Coast in general, particularly the Northwest. You think so? Oh, yeah. Victoria's the same way, man. It's is a bunch it? of weirdos. Well, yeah, it's, I went to high school there. It's it's the <laughs> it's the land of the weirdos, but it's good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being weird. I don't I don't mean it in a derogatory sense. I mean, like it's just true and it's great. And uh, I went to high school in four different schools across Canada growing up. And uh, Squimalt High in Victoria was the weirdest one I went to, and it was great. Also had the best jazz program, and I was lucky I had a chance to play in it. Uh, that all fits together. Yeah, I think if you're a musician, you're missing a screw to begin with. But I, I just say that on <laughs> behalf of myself. I, I don't know you that well. Well, especially if you're trying to make a living doing it, you're definitely missing a fucking screw. Oh, God. That I can attest to. It's, it's a test of your patience. It truly is. Yeah, Port, <laughs> Portland even has bumper stickers that say, keep Portland weird. So uh, that was inspiration. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. When, when I saw that. Yeah, I lived down there for about 12 years. And uh, oh yeah, it's hard to define what it actually was, but it was fun. I had a great time. Okay, here's a question that you don't normally ask another guy, unless it's an interview, I guess. Uh, I was checking out your pictures. Do you work out? Twelve inches. Twelve. Oh, twelve. <laughs> I already knew that when you whip <laughs> out your big ten inch. Okay. Yeah, that's right. What was the question? Uh, oh, I was asking. Uh, do you work out? I do. Yeah, I. Uh, it's great. I got a gym membership. There's a great 24-7 gym down the street, and me and my wife go when we're, when we're on point four to five times a week, but the last couple of weeks I've been sick as a dog, so I haven't gone at all. Oh, no. Yeah, just stupid spring flu shit. No. Same as last year. I don't know, it was April hits, and I get, we get everyone in the house gets this bizarro cold that lasts like two or three weeks. I don't know, but it's probably something to do with my son going to daycare and stuff, so it all starts with him. That's it. Those children, I tell you, we've got to get rid of them. <laughs> yeah, well, we just had ours, so we're, we're well in the thick of it. My excuse is I just had surgery on my right hand. Now, oh, yeah, right, right. You were saying that. I had a look at what that surgery was. Oh, that's, God, that's a, you did. It's a tough okay. one. Oh, no, it looks horrible, but hopefully I'll be able to straighten my hand out. And I'm left-handed, too, but it kind of doesn't matter because I'm ambidextrous, and I keep trying to do things with my right hand, and it's like a, a like I say, like a speed bump. It's just right. in, in the way. But hopefully it'll get straightened out. So, so you're ambidextrous. So you you have the same amount of skill with your left as you do with your right. Pretty much. I can't write very well with my right hand, and I can't play guitar. What they would call left-handed. To me, normally right. people play left-handed because your left hand's on the fretboard. So yeah, I don't. Know. Yeah, I would agree. I, I would tend to agree. You would think that that a normal way to play guitar would be accenting. Yeah, because a lot of the uh, the agility is with your left hand if you're playing it standard. Yeah, if, if you're going if you're going off offhand, then it would be the other way. Like you know, if you're Paul McCartney or you're Jimi Hendrix, then you would think, well, then that's sort of more accenting, accentuating your right hand. But uh, yeah, weird. Because I'm right-handed, and so I I can't play guitar. I can't reverse guitar and play it. You know, I'm not not Steve Vai. I can't play a heart-shaped guitar with seven headstocks flying out of it. And all the <laughs> Nobody is Steve Vai. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. I knew a guy that could play upside down though he'd just take a standard tuning and just flip it over and play it the other way he could play both ways talk about going both ways this guy was amazing also a question you don't want to ask a guy <laughs> okay do you work out and do you go both ways okay I put that on my notepad of 
questions that should be avoided. Do you pee in the shower? That's another one. Let me answer your question again. Working out, very important if you are a pub singer. I'll tell you why. When you're standing up four to five nights a week playing three-hour sets straight with no breaks, which is what I did at Hogpenny for 12 years, Jeez. You, need, you need to be in shape. It helps a lot keeps your pipes in working condition because a strong diaphragm and a strong core is the is a complete foundation of a strong rock vocalist and uh it makes a it makes a huge difference so that was a lot of it i'm also vain i don't want to look fat and shabby especially now that i'm over the over the age of 40 uh i'm even more vain than i used to be (laughs) so yeah that's cool i think uh, the united states leaves leads the world in not being vain enough to not be fat I, we have <laughs> we have more chub factor here than any place on the planet. I think Denmark is number two. I don't know why. Actually, I, I, I beg to differ. Yeah? Bermuda Bermuda <laughs> is one of the fattest places on the planet. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's a lot of fat people in Bermuda. And no offense to all my fat friends. I'm not talking to you, Sharif. I am. And uh, so, you know... It's it's because it's it's in the lap of luxury. It's a beautiful weather year round. People got fast food there. They like KFC, and uh, I don't know. I love you, Bermuda. I hate you. I love you. I love lots of things, but Bermuda. I'm actually back in Bermuda um, in July, July July 11th to August 4th. I'm I'm there for a month at Hogpenny. I now I go back in the summer just to cover the regular guys that are there, the local guys that are. There's two dudes that sort of trade off the doing the weekend slot and I just go in and give them a break over the summer and this year I'm bringing the family with me so we'll treat it like a bit of, of a vacation. It sounds wonderful and I don't think anybody caught any of the subliminal thinking that you had in there. So. <laughs> yeah, it, I was there for a long time. I, I left of my own recognizance and uh, one of the things with Bermuda when you're an expat is they will never ever let you become Bermudian unless you actually marry one. And, and that wasn't going to happen. Uh, hope, you know, that wasn't the plan anyway. And so my wife and I were like, well, you know, uh, she was she was a dental hygienist while she was there. Um, we were like, well, we can stay here and keep doing this or, or we can move on. And and we decided to move on. It was good for it was good for everyone involved. My, my son was was born there. But we, we kind of figured before he was born that once he was old enough to that we felt we were ready to go, we would go. So uh, now I now I focus on this full time. This is what I do. I'm. I'm officially an independent musician full time, and and I love it. I wouldn't I wouldn't rather do anything else. Living the life, I think it's cool. Yeah, you get to travel a lot too. That's uh, many many people don't travel anywhere near as much as you have, including me. Well, you know, it's funny. It, people don't. A lot of people don't understand though that when you do travel specifically for like touring or doing any sort of press for albums, whatever, is that touring or sorry traveling that much is almost worse than not traveling at all because when you're when you're living out of a suitcase and 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 literally every day is another airport or another car ride or another moving checking into and out of a hotel or trying to find food while you're on the run because you're on a schedule it's uh it's tough because you know when when i'm doing these tours in the uk or wherever i stack up the shows because you know i'm i'm paying all the bills so i'm not there on a vacation so I'm, I'm normally trying to do four to five shows a week and you don't get a lot of time to sightsee so they're busy but but it's a good busy you know because you're going to these shows and there's people there that i always do uh meet and greet with fans before the show so it's a chance to meet you know old friends and new ones and chat with them before the show and but uh but a, a couple of years ago i kind of cut the booze out of my shows completely which was a good move and that that helps a lot um 
excuse me, especially when I'm doing so much driving around, traveling and stuff. But uh, I mentioned that because for, for years I was a social drinker, especially when I was at Hogpenny. And uh, one of the best, best things I ever did for myself was just to sort of, I think I kind of went to cold turkey for it. You know, I just kind of stopped and took a big break. And, and then, uh, you know, now and then I, I go back to it. But uh, I just know that a lot of guys that are in my trade or, you know, doing that, the pub thing, that's a, it's a, uh, it's like a necessary devil sometimes because you're around it all the time, you know, and it's very easy to have a couple of drinks and just kind of relax and, and make that part of your routine. But, and the drinks are copped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I did that too. I just quit drinking just because I decided it was a compromise on everything I was doing. It's fun. You know, it's like 1% fun and 10 parts pain in the butt sometimes. So, yeah. Yeah. So it was just much easier. Plus, I'm, I'm pretty crazy without it. So I don't really need too much fuel to get to, to party. Right. Yeah, right. I'm a, I'm a happy well, guy. Well, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I remember, uh, I think it was what, 2012, 2013 was, the, was when I really took a hard look at how drinking and my performances were intertwined. And I realized that if I didn't drink on a given night, I was actually, uh, I was antsy and I was a bit uh, a bit of a pain in the ass to be around. And when I started picking up on that, I'm like, man, I can't believe I, I felt like I needed to drink just to get into mode to perform. And and when that really hit home, I was like, man, fuck, I don't, I don't need, I know I don't want to have to drink to be able to play on stage, but I had gotten to that point. So, um, it, I, I got over it pretty quick, but once I did and I realized, you know, I actually feel great and I don't need to be a goof, uh, goofy drunk guy to have a good time and put on an entertaining show. I kind of never looked back and, and, you know, I do now and then, but it's, it's on occasion. And <laughs> like we were mentioned, you know, I just turned 40 last year, you know, the, you once you hit 40 and you don't drink very much when you do it kicks you in the ass real hard the next day <laughs> and and the day after that depending on how hard you hit it so uh, it's even more reason not to ever touch the touch the sauce yeah good good advice you know and i I'm, i don't go around <laughs> preaching that i don't do any preaching to anybody because everybody's different so i i don't think my way's the you know my way or the highway i don't think that at all Right. And, and I just I just want to say out there, this is just my own experience that I learned after years of playing in a bar. And, I, and I've just seen people. Um, I've got friends that have done this longer than I have performing in bars, younger guys that are just kind of starting out a little and everyone does what works for them. Um, I'm just relating it because you mentioned about working out. And I just thought, well, geez, how do I talk about working out with, a, with you know, and relate it to music? And then that's how I got into the drinking, because I thought if there's anything about being healthy, and being a regular performer, um, and if you work in a bar every night, uh, the drinking is going to come up at some point or another. So that that was how I dealt with it. And well put. Let's talk about your songs a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Uh, let sleeping dogs lie. Let it hurt like hell. There is no try. Cry like hell. Will Black. Cry like hell. In her eyes 
I like that. It's good lyrics. Do you write your own lyrics? Do you write all your stuff? Where do you get your inspiration? Lots of questions. I write all my own lyrics. Uh, my inspiration, uh, it's 99% perspiration, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to really force myself to write. It's not something I do out of, for the love of it. Uh, I find that a lot of times I'll write down lines or ideas that come when I'm watching a movie or if I'm driving. Uh, I just That's sort of the two places that things kind of jump into my head. And uh, all the songs of my record, records, the last three records, have been uh, written by me. I, I produced them all as well. Uh, there was two songs that I wrote with another guitar player, Chris Stebrell, that was Forever Was Never Enough. And Original Rose was the other one we did. Uh, I just mentioned that because I've had, I've had people in the past ask, do you want to co-write? Do you want to? And, and I'm normally, I'm, I'm kind of like, well, no, uh, <laughs> it, it's not personal. It's just, uh, a, I don't like writing unless I have to. And B, it's just ways you're just to do it on my own terms when I have time. And, and it's just, uh, I just feel like I got enough stuff kicking around in my head that I don't need, uh. I don't need to go to the well any further than my own. So that makes sense, and like you said, it's uh, a lot of it's just perspiration, working at it and, and honing it out, so this like beam of light doesn't come down like the Ten Commandments or something, and suddenly you come forth with this uh, Sergeant Pepper's album or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I think that Sergeant Pepper's album, you know, that was a there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that came out of that one, and it was uh, that I think out of you know, that one and maybe the White Album were the ones that really were the creative max of all the Beatles just throwing all their shit together and kind of what comes out. Although, I, and I can't remember his name, but the the producer orchestration guy, uh, Martin, George Martin. George Martin. He had a lot to do with Sgt. Pepper's, you know. I think that so. That was a lot of him. I think so. They had some recording engineers that were pretty inventive as well too i think they just had the all-star lineup they really didn't realize it it was like putting a man on the moon it was like i don't care how you get there just figure it out and you know it's funny because that was like 66 or something like that when that one came out and and you think about if somebody recorded a record like that now uh it could it could be just as inventive well that how inventive can it be now 60 years into rock and roll but i mean uh like I was having this this discussion with a buddy of mine here in Estonia, and he was saying like, "Yeah, I I listen to bands, but I never discover new bands. I never know, I never know how to find a band." I go, "Well, actually, it should be the band's job to find you. That's how I see it. You know, I know some musicians disagree with me on this, but I, I actually believe that your job is if you're creating music, you need to go out and find your consumer base. You got to find your your new fans because they." They want to hear new music, but people are lazy. I'm I'm testament to this. People are lazy. They want stuff given to them, and they just want it simple. And that's cool. That's why Spotify works so well. It's a very slick, intuitive, and simple interface for people to use. Especially if you obviously if you've got internet connection, right? But people will like discovery. Spotify does this with a, a discovery playlist every week that they send to people thirty songs, right? Now the thing is. 
there's thousands upon thousands of bands that have songs on Spotify that you're never going to hear because there's just so many good songs on there now. But that doesn't mean that the artist who made the songs is without the resources to go and find a fan who likes a band that's similar in sound or vibe to them and say, look, here's a song. I think you might like it. And if you do, let's talk. And that's basically how I do my marketing. And, and it works. I think you're spot on. Uh, with uh, the advent of the internet, which I've heard called the, the greatest marketing tool ever, you know, mm -hmm. it has a trade-offs though because of that fact. Um, it's the amateur hour in a lot of ways too, because anybody can get something out there. So it's a vast Pacific Ocean of of everybody, lots of fish. <laughs> Pacific Ocean, someone from the Northwest, right there. I got you. Well, it's a big ocean, so I went for it. Yeah, it is. It's the biggest. There you go. That's a good call. Yeah, that's a, yeah. I, I, I like all oceans, though. I'm kind of the Will Rogers of oceans. I've never been an nice. ocean I didn't like, I guess. But yeah, I'm a Seattle guy. But but yeah, it's a, like I said, it, it's a double edged sword in that uh, it's huge. The audience is all out there. But yeah, you do. You have to perfect how you go about finding them. And uh, your music could be the best on the planet. But if nobody hears it, you know, it's the tree that falls in the woods scenario. And absolutely as you will know i i do and, and for years i think for my first couple of records my first one especially you know when that came out in 2008 it was sort of the day of myspace and i think up for the next couple of years i was dibble dibble dabbling in promoting this album i did my first album as kind of an experiment i didn't really know what was going to happen with it i didn't know what i was going to do with it I just knew I wanted, I, I knew I had to have one done. I was 30 years old. I'm like, man, I play rock for a living. I want to, I, I got my own songs. I really want to do this album. And that was, it just sort of took off from there. I've, so much of my career has been sorted out through trial and error. Yeah. But a lot of musicians, if they're listening to this, if you want to make a business out of your music, don't be afraid to treat your music like a business. And that means learning things about business that you may not even want to or like, but you have to. So sales and marketing, you know, how to, how to balance your books, uh, you know, taxes. All, all, there's all sorts of things you, you really need to look at if you're going to do it as a business. So you can say, yeah, I'm a profitable business who makes original music. I mean, that is so hard to do nowadays, but it is doable. It's doable and I'm living proof. It's almost as if, as if the two concepts are polar opposite, creating something yeah. from your heart and then mm -hmm. making it work on a ledger. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, because it's like analytical and, and, and uh, you know, subjective sides of your brain kind of having to work in tandem. I mean, I struggle with that all the time because, I mean, I spend most of my time is spent on the marketing aspect of what I do. And I spend so little on the creative end. I wish it was the other way around, but it just it just can't be because that's that's what's required. And and uh, when I have to switch gears and sit down and start laying down guitar parts for a new song, which is what I'm doing now, it's like, oh, talk about having to dust off, you know, the old guitar chops and stuff. It's like, man, I, I realize I don't play electric anymore, you know, and and all these other things. But you know, I'm sure getting savvy at Facebook marketing, yay. <laughs> you know, it's I didn't start playing rock and roll music to pick up chicks on facebook no so, yeah i've heard the metaphor um and i didn't make this up but 
you know, as, as people forget about this, uh, I'll, I'll say it was original. So by the time I'm old and dying, uh, it'll be my original thing. But <laughs> doing the, the business end of music is like dancing to architecture. <laughs> Even to put yeah. that in one sentence doesn't make any sense. There you go. But yeah, <laughs> let's, I know. let's talk about another one of your songs here. You slay me. What is that all about? So that's a line that I had bouncing around in my head since about '98, and that was said to me by a gal on a date in in uh, in a nice way, by the way, not a bad, not a mean way. And that she you were making her laugh or something? Uh yeah, something like that. It was good, and. She uh, and it always stuck in my brain afterwards, just the look on her face when she said it, and it was awesome. And I thought, you know, that'd be a great idea for a song. And um, when when I was on stage one night at Hogpenny, I had the video camera rolling, and and I just started. Sometimes I get bored on stage because it's quiet or whatever, and I just started trying to. I just created a song on the spot. <laughs> I I wrote most of you slay me in one take on stage, and. I remember after I played it, the bartender behind the stage, his name's Jason Bracewell, and we, we, he's we call him the singing bartender because he would come up and sing with me a lot on stage. He's a kind of a hard rock singer guy, looks like a biker, awesome guy. But in the <laughs> early years, he actually used to wear a head mic and sing backing vocals with me while he was serving drinks behind the bar. <laughs> That's which cool. Was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But and anyway, that it, it kind of worked and it kind of didn't. Um, but anyway. I remember after I played that song, he let out this big bellow, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, well, I actually got his attention because, you know, most nights I'm just the guy making noise on the stage. You know, they've all heard me play a million and one fucking times. Yeah, yeah. But that picked up his ears. And I remember saying to him after the show, he goes, I said, you know, when I was singing that song, man, I was actually thinking of you and Tracy, this is wife, and, and everything they'd gone through that I've known them through. And, and I said that you guys were sort of jumping around in my brain while I was writing that song. And he goes, yeah, there was something about it, man. That just... It grabbed me. So, anyway, that that was that's you slay me, and that was on uh, that's on the album Cry Like Hell. I use you. You've used me. Things we do, we believe. I don't care what they say. You and I will not fade away. I got hope. You got dreams. Mary Burn, what we used to be in your care, God only knows. Two more weary hearts carry on.
What are your plans for the future? World peace uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, world peace. Uh, I hate these fucking questions. Oh, I know. I'm so sorry. I, uh, that's okay. No, it's good. It's should, good though, you should write them down and send them. My Either guess. something witty and short, or really long <laughs> and, and deep. But it's yeah. going to be something in the middle. Uh, well, let, let's let's keep it near term. The next six months. So on November fifteenth, I've got a date circled. That is the date that the album number four is going to debut. All right. It's called the Blinding Heights. I, I named it after the podcast I used to do because, um, I I put a lot of work into coming up with a name for the podcast. It's a funny. Excuse me. A funny story. When I first started the podcast that I did back in two thousand ten, where I found independent bands and played their songs on the show, interviewed a bunch of them. I was calling it rock star radio, which I thought was real sna- uh, snappy and snazzy. And I had a, a gal I knew did the voc- the voiceover for it, for the intro and everything. I was like, yeah, this is cool. Eight episodes in, I got a cease and desist letter from a guy in Missoula, Montana, saying, hey, man, uh, heads up. I have the rights to rock star radio for, for all media usage, blah, 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 blah. You have to stop using the title in your podcast. I'm like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Really? And, and I looked at, he actually sent me a letter and it was, he had this lawyer on there and everything. I thought, you know what? Fuck, no problem. So I said, you know what? Hey, thanks for giving me a heads up. I checked it out. It was legit. I'll come up with something more original. So I came up with the Blinding Heights, which I thought was kind of a cool name. And 
it's it's a lyric for one of my songs. It's also a lyric from um, a song by Chris Cornell. And so that title's kind of hung around for years, and it kind of went quiet. And when I was coming up with an album, for, a title for this upcoming album, I thought, you know, let's get Blinding Heights back out there. Because there's, now here I'm going to get back into my marketing dork spiel for a second. <laughs> no, go when for it. With, when you come up with a title for an album, you're going to be using it a lot. So do a little bit of market research yeah. and see in your genre, yeah, yeah. are there lots of other albums that are rock, that are independent, that are called X, Y, and Z? You know, mm-hmm. and not really, but you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, you. whatever you're going to use. And so the Bonding Heights worked. It works for me. Uh, and I thought, yeah, fuck, let's, let's do it. And, and so that's the next six months. And then between now and then I've got, uh, I don't know, five singles that I want to release, uh, starting next month with Sway and those will be available. Uh, well, basically it's going to be a trade off. Some will be available if you're to, to newsletter subscribers for free. You just have to be a member of the newsletter and then some of them will be like a dollar download or something. It's it, They'll be very accessible for people that are on the newsletter. I'm not going to release them to uh, streaming media right away. That'll be way, way down the road. Um, but uh, the plan is to basically build up some momentum, generate some excitement about this new album, and then just drop the whole thing on the middle of November. It'll be available on CD. It'll be available for download. It'll be available for streaming. And and then just go from there and then, and then kind of keep the pace up because – I actually haven't released anything official since 2016, and uh, I think in my industry, where I'm actually making money off creating new songs and selling them, whether it's on physical media or downloading, and all the associated you know merch that goes with that, I think you really should be trying to put something out once a year. And playing live, and you do that. A lot of people, uh, I won't say a lot, but some people are thinking that I can just do it all over the internet, but I think the human touch will never die. I think playing live is huge. Your thoughts? That's the one thing we have over the 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 robo apocalypse. You know, <laughs> day, right? Is that we can still get out and play and put on a convincing show, and and you know a robot shop, a Spotify can't can't do that. So the human touch does it it does work. But here's the caveat to that, and I've learned this through trial and error and doing tours, is that it's a lot of money and a lot of time to get people to come to a show. So what I did is kind of starting last summer through it's ongoing, I, I put most of my touring on hold and now I've kind of starting to build up my fan base from the other side of things. I'm actually building it up right now through people that buy CDs. And once that fan base is strong enough to warrant doing a show in whatever market is strong enough, I'll go back and do a show. Um, but before I was actually marketing to people in specific cities trying to build the fan base up in, say, London, England, so that when I go to London, oh, I know I'll have a certain amount of draw. And it did work. It worked to a certain degree. But the amount of money and the scalability of the way I was doing it, uh-uh, it doesn't. It, it's, it, didn't, it didn't work. It didn't work very well because um, when you're going and doing a show, at least at, I'm doing a solo show, but even just me on my own, I really need to sell about 100 tickets uh, for me. To, to go and do a show and, and, and I think make it worth my while to go to you know do the tick do the all the promo book the flights fly over there do it so until I'm back to a point not I shouldn't say back but until I'm actually at a point where I feel like I can get a hundred bums on seats in, in a room uh, and I mean you know in a, in, a, in a in a you know fat bottom girls make the rock and world go round kind of way I love 
bums. Uh, yeah, my, my, my grandmother used to say bum, and it always embarrassed me because, I, you know, everybody was saying butt and ass, and I, I was always embarrassed to say bum, but I actually use it as a preferable word to posterior now. And, and, and I, got, I picked it up from Sue Kemp, who we call her the general. There's a song about her that I wrote for her, and, and she's the one who always said bums on seats. And <laughs> I say it's cute bums not bums and like a bunch of losers like oh you guys got nothing going for you you're a lousy bum mm-hmm. you know your butt i love butts yeah everyone get their on a seat so once that all kind of comes back around that i'm looking to book again i think i'm going to have a much better result yeah uh these weren't terrible shows at all they were great energy and it was fine it's just uh just to make it work economically and for me because i transitioned from <laughs> i transitioned from pub entertainer to original music artist and I'm trying not to sound. Uh, uh, what's, uh, you sound anywhere you want to. I understand. What I you're like, it, it. It was. Uh, I'd never done it, but I had to make it work because if it didn't work, I was going to be pumping gas at Esso down the street, kind of thing. Because mm. I got to do something to make money if I'm not playing five nights a week at a bar. Because that bar was my day job, basically, and making original music was essentially my hobby on the side. So when I decided I wanted to make my hobby my full-time career, um, I don't know if a lot of people picked up on that's what I essentially was trying to do was because my day job was playing music. But when you're trying to switch to doing original music as your full-time thing, man, that's a completely different gig. So it's been a real learning curve over the last 18 months of what I had been doing that wasn't working and wasn't cost-effective. To put it in perspective, uh, up until the beginning of this year, I didn't even keep proper books on how my expenses and my income we're balancing. I do now, and, and it's funny, now that I've been doing it for almost six months, I'm like, how could I not have been doing this? Um, it's just one of those things you do, and you're like, you look back and go, man, this is so necessary to know what's working, what isn't, and if the dimes I've got in the bank are going to pay for what I'm doing. Uh, but little things like that, that as a musician, you don't think of first, but as a businessman, you have to. Um, and it, yeah, and I've completely lost track what I was question I was answering, but anyway, yeah. No, no. Oh, you're on track. What do I see? And world peace. World peace. That's key. Yeah. If you can deal with that, I, you got my my uh, my two cents. You know what's uh, what I find really oh, compelling about you is you're not afraid to try something new. And I think the world is, especially in the music industry, you have to because nobody really knows what's going on anymore. So the worst thing you can do is don't do anything. And uh, that pretty much applies to uh, a lot of things, except for the things that prevent world peace. But <laughs> see how I tied that in. But uh, yeah, to try to just have an idea and, and pursue it and see how it works and then hone it from there. Try something similar or, or bag it completely and start out at zero. But I think you're on the right track. I, I just want to say that that is probably the most important thing I've learned since I started doing this on my own, since I left Bermuda and Hogpenny and the comfort of that, you know, weekly paycheck and that gig and doing this sort of leap into nothingness of trying to do this on my own is you have to get people to react to what you do. Mm-hmm. They can either say, you fucking suck, shut the fuck up, leave me alone. Yeah, that's they important can, to know. Yeah. Or they can say, eh, it's not my thing. Or, eh, yeah, it's okay. Or they might say, I love you, I want to bury children. Right? Yeah. Look, Anything, anything in those between those two completely opposite degrees of reaction are better than nothing. 
Yeah. Because when you have nothing, you literally have when you get no when you get no replies, that is nothing. And as an entertainer and you're trying to share art, if people aren't looking or listening or climbing on or dancing to your art, then you're not getting anywhere with it, at least professionally. Like if you want to do it as a hobby on your own, that's fine. But don't fool yourself into thinking you're gonna be professional if you're not making an effort to share your music or your art with an audience. Yeah, you're not going to get discovered. By anyone. And I'm not talking discovered by Clive Davis. I'm talking discovered by Joe right. Sixpack around the corner, you know? <laughs> the bum. Well, <laughs> yeah, the bum. Or anyone. Or by Bruce Hilliard. You know, if you want to get discovered by Bruce, it, you know, there's not. it's not a coincidence that you picked up on me while I'm about two months into the biggest promotional campaign I've ever done for my music. It's, it's not. I'm, I'm sure you ran into me somewhere on Facebook or you something popped up in a news feed or or somebody said, this guy fucking sucks. Don't ever have him on your show. And you're like, hmm, let's see how bad he sucks. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. I, I, and I saw you and I, I, the first thing I thought was, this guy doesn't fucking suck. No, I didn't think that. But <laughs> no, I, I thought you were great. And, and I, I see what you're doing. And it's it's pretty much on a silver platter for most people. I, you know, it's, here it is. Here's the sound. Here's uh, my newsletter. How do you sign up for that newsletter, for, just for the listeners? Oh, yeah, sure. It's it's willblack.net. And when you sign up, you automatically get three songs that you can stream or download, whatever you choose. And you can get those on your mobile device or just listen to them on your desktop or or burn them on a CD, listen to them in your hot rod, whatever you like. But it's uh, the newsletter is my uh, my premier way to keep in touch with people. I I've experimented with Facebook Messenger. I still do that a little bit. I have a song of the day thing I do every day. I, I curate a song. It's, just, <laughs> it's as close as I get to sort of doing the Blinding Heights again. And mm. I just pick a song and put on, on on a Spotify playlist and on a YouTube playlist. But the newsletter, and again, for musicians listening, anyone listening that's doing anything like I'm talking about, one word of advice, the newsletter is so key because emails are going nowhere. Emails are here to stay. Facebook, the, the, the permutations and iterations of Facebook over the last 12 years, it's, it's been all over the place. It, it could blow up. It, you never know what's going to happen with Facebook, um, in particular with Messenger, because I have tried to do some extensive marketing through Messenger, and it's really hit and miss. But a lot of people are really pushing the Messenger promotion right now, and, and that's a whole other discussion. But, but the newsletter is really important. So the reason I say that is when people sign up to the newsletter – I reply to everybody who replies back when I send out a newsletter blast. Uh, I just sent one out tonight for uh, a little content blurb about a video I did for Summer 69. And just, just to get some feedback from people around the world, how their summers are, are either starting off or south of the equator, how they're rounding up. Because I've got fans in Oz and New Zealand, and, and they're just at the tail end of their summers. And So... Things like that, I find the newsletter you get um, a much you get a better response from people. I, like I don't know, Bruce. Like when you use, I'm, I'm assuming you use Facebook, and you have probably a Facebook Messenger. Yeah. When you have a conversation, I get a, bl- a blur from somebody on Messenger, versus when somebody sends you an email or newsletter. You, do you find your mindset is a little different when you go to open it? Yeah, yeah. You can get people's attention a lot better through a, a newsletter than you can through Messenger, and. Uh, so anyways, yeah, there's, again, a long answer. I hope you edit the shit out of this interview. <laughs> <laughs> I um, Especially the parts where I talk about myself because it's about no, you. No, 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 because then it just sounds like I'm talking about me. you got to keep all your no, stuff it, in. it is you about can, you. Can say everything. 
you could pare me down by half. You're an interesting uh, guy. They're going to make a movie about you someday. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, right. Bohemian Crap City. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and look, I got to tell you something about Freddie. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge Freddie Mercury fan. Yeah, yeah. I love Freddie. I've been a fan of Freddie since I was five years old. Mm. Uh, listening to Queen's Grace hits in my dad's car. And I was watching some interview stuff with Freddie, one of these old, you know, YouTube videos like, oh, Freddie, did you know this, this, this about Freddie? And oh, he made everybody laugh, blah, blah, blah. He's sitting there and I swear in every video, he's, I mean, you can tell he's nervous with doing interviews, but every video, he, he's smoking a fucking cigarette, man. Like he's got cancer darts going on. I know, I know. And I'm thinking the guy dies from, the guy dies from, from, from AIDS, but if he didn't, he was going to die from cancer. Or the, <laughs> the thing that got me is he sings like a bird. I know. But he's smoking like a chimney. The first thing they tell you not to do is smoke. And then they say alcohol is bad for your vocal cords too. But yeah, smoking, I, there's no way. Yeah, he does. And why is he nervous? I don't, some people just don't do interviews well, I guess. Oh, and that's fine. I got that. I mean, that's that. That's fine. I mean, Freddie was a pretty, I think he was kind of an introvert kid growing up. He went through a lot of shit growing up. And yeah. he, you know, he had the thing with his mouth. So he got made fun of a lot and, mm -hmm. and you know and so i think he had a lot of that to kind of come out of and you know also being a gay man in the early 80s and late 70s it's not like it is now so there's yeah he had that he had to struggle with so i i got that but what i don't get is a guy who's such a great singer i mean really an operatic level of of vocal talent smoking like a chimney. But then again, I guess it says something to Freddie's personality and he was so cavalier about a lot of things. I'm like, fuck it, darling. I'll do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, baby. You know, that was kind of his, his groove. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and that's cool. But I mean, I know from my own experience that when I, and I used to be a social smoker back when I was a social drinker <laughs> and it, it fucks the chords, man. And I know other singers like John, John Mellencamp is, well, I don't know if he has any more because he had a heart attack, but he was like a three or four day pack a day smoker and i know john bon jovi was smoking at, at one point a lot when he was doing movies because he said you stand outside all day with nothing to do so he took up smoking i'm like well could you take up a rubik's cube instead i don't know i mean it must be that's not gonna hurt your pipes Mel melon can't uh, kind of swears by it because he says it helps his voice because he, he sounds black he wants to sound black so I, and you know what that's funny i've heard him say that and that's a great fucking excuse but whatever uh <laughs> <laughs> they used to give out coupons so you could get fishing reels and sweaters and stuff like that before your day. <laughs> so that was a good excuse. Oh, yeah. How the hell do you think I got this fishing reel? I couldn't just go out and buy one. Come on. I, You know, I saw John Mellencamp live in 99, and it was one of the better rock shows I've seen. It was in a stadium, and it was really good. Um, but I also remember because I picked up the chick who was standing next to us that night, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's and good. That, that, yeah, the evening ended well, but it was a great show. Not just because I, I, you know, I got a, you know, I met this pretty girl, but mm -hmm. um, I thought John put on a really great show, and uh, he, his songs are just they're just great songs, and it just it really fits the stadium atmosphere. Like when you go to see a Springsteen show, I mean, people who are fans of Springsteen, and um, I, and and then again, I always tell people the best live show I ever saw was ACDC. I, I always thought that was they were the best rock band. I've heard that more than once. Yeah, the best live band ever is what I hear. Amazing, amazing. So, uh, you, yeah. You mentioned Brian Adams in one of your, mm -hmm. in your bio, actually. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's pretty awesome. Does he still does he still tour? He's a Canadian guy, isn't he? Yeah, he sure is. Uh, Brian is touring right now. He's got a new album out, and, and there's a lot of crossover between his fans and mine. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of my fans like Brian, I should say. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, 
he uh yeah you know what the funny thing is i've never seen brian live i uh I don't know why. I, well, I know when I was in Bermuda for 12 years, I never saw anybody because I was on an island in the middle of the Atlantic, so you just don't see a lot of people. Um, but I've always wanted to see Brian. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a point of doing that at some point soon. I think the last band I saw was Iron Maiden last year, and they were fantastic. Uh, Bruce Dickinson, wow. Like The guy's almost 60 years old, and he sounds incredible. And it was just a great show. They're just very professional what a slick show. And it was the first night of their tour, so they're using tallying as like the kind of uh, almost like a dress rehearsal for their show. There was little props and stuff falling apart. They're fixing mid-show. But the other thing with these guys, again, let's talk about working out again. These guys work out because they're all over the age of 60 and they are jumping around the stage. Every single member of that band, except, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're all pretty, there's the one guy, I can't, fuck, I can't remember his name, the other guitar player, jumping like maniacs and I just thought man if if I ever reach that age and I'm on a stage like that I hope I'm moving as fast as those guys are my crystal ball says you will because I think you're all, <laughs> you're all over it because you already know <clears throat> what's going to happen I mean what happens if, well you saw what happened to my hand that was just uh, something I was born with but it took till I got into my 60s before it really started to get to the point where I couldn't pick up a milk carton or something, you know. I couldn't open my hand far enough to do it. I can hold a pick. But after that, not so good. But I think uh, staying physically in shape, and I'm preaching to the choir, I know here, but it also helps with your brain. It keeps the blood clean, everything's going, everything's firing all cylinders, and it can do nothing but help. Anything less than that, like I say, is a compromise. So mm-hmm. you're totally on uh, on the road to more success than I think you even can imagine right now. You know, I, I really appreciate that, Bruce. I mean, for me, it's really just one foot in front of the other. I That's why when you say, you know, what do you want to do for the future? It's like, dude, I just... I just want to get these guitar tracks down. I I just want to get this first single out. You know, I've got a I've got a wedding. I've been hired to go play in London at the end of the month. Like, all oh, it's more like immediate things are on my brain. I'm not me playing a stadium tour. I mean, I would love to do that one day. But you know, it's uh, you know one one foot in front of the other. And 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 like I tell people, it's always it's really the journey, not the destination, because. Even if somebody does get to the point as a, as a musician, they're playing stadiums, that's not the top of the mountain. There, there is no top of the mountain. There's, it's, there's always going to be, if you're the kind of person that strives to reach a new height in your career, there's, there's always going to be another point that you want to try and, str- and strive towards. So it's the striving that's important, not the actual getting to that you know, mythic point.
listening to the Better Each Day podcast radio show with Bruce Hilliard. We'll be back with a new horizon, but until then, honor the future. It comes with a lifetime guarantee. We're all just trying to make the next day a bit better.